Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to continue in our study about growing up spiritually because it is God's purpose for your life. And we've spent time and established from God's Word that when you were saved, God wasn't finished with you. In fact, He just began with you. The moment you receive Christ as, as your Savior and you step into the kingdom of God, He begins to work in you. God is persistent. I've found in walking with Him for 33 years, God is persistent and single-minded. If there's something you don't want Him to deal with it and you keep avoiding, He's going to come back to it and 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 back to it. He may wait a while until you get ready, but He'll come back to it. In our school systems, after a while, I think people get, they get tired of somebody you know, keeping them in the same. So they just promote you just for the sake of getting you out of their classroom. God won't do that. He won't move you along until you're ready. And I don't know about you, but that's a great feeling of security and safety to me. Because one of the things I've realized in 33 years is I'm a lousy judge of where I am. We always think we're someone either ahead or behind where we are. But only God knows where you really are spiritually. And God knows what you need and only God therefore. So we need to get our eyes on Him and be open and willing to grow. That's really what the requirement is. begins by willing to face where you really are and being willing to admit you may not be where you think you are. Some of you may be behind where you really are. Some of you may be ahead of where you really are. But only God knows where that is. So we need to put that into His hands and just do what His Word says to do, and God will cause the growth in us. So that's what we've been talking about. We went back and established from these verses. Well, let me read through them. Now I'm going to establish where we were for, then I'm going to read through them. Well, we established, first of all, that there's one body, that we're all part of a body. It's the body of Christ. We went back and looked in chapter 1 and 2 and saw that what God has done for us. Because Paul starts out there and says, I therefore, by the mercies of God, he declares that what he's about to tell us is based on what God's already done in us. So we went back and established who you are. You're a child of God. You're the righteousness of God. God's spirit is in you. God has a future for you. He has ordained an inheritance for you. And he, Paul prays elsewhere, actually in this section, he prays that God would open our eyes to see that, that we're, what is the hope of his calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. And then Paul switches in chapter 4 begins to discuss what our responsibility is as a result of what God has done for us. And we see that there's a calling to which we've all been called. And that calling is to grow up and to take our place in the body of Christ. And he says there's one God, there's one body. So although there may be a total of some 900 people that come into this building today, we're really one body. And we have different functions, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There's one body, and there's one Lord, and there's one God. And then we talked about, well, now I do want to read down through it. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've already been called with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. You notice the growing up process can be painful. And therefore, he says, we need to bear with one another because we're not all there yet. We're not all as spiritually mature as you yet. And you've noticed human nature is we're very adept at noticing other people's failings. We're very good at observing them and and even sometimes pointing them out to other people. We're a little more reluctant to notice our own. But one of the things I've learned, and this this is free today, one of the things I've learned is that 
the things that I'm very sensitive and notice in other people, their weaknesses, very often tend to be weaknesses that I have. That's why I notice them. And the reason they irritate me in them is because they're reminding me of what I know is in me. And the reason why I want to focus on what you're doing is it takes the attention off of what I'm doing. Ed Cole, who went home to be with the Lord a number of years ago, had a tremendous men's ministry. He had wonderful nuggets he would teach. And one of them is that we tend to, we tend to, how is this? We tend to judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. When the Bible teaches us to do just the opposite, to evaluate others by their heart and their intentions and ourselves by our actions. And so the process of growing up requires us to bear with one another. If you're growing up in a family, you've got children of different ages, the older have to learn to tolerate the younger. That's one of the advantages of having more than one children. I went from being an only child because my, then my parents were divorced and my mother remarried and the man that she remarried already had three children. So I went overnight from being an only child to being the oldest of four and then eventually of five boys. And it was a shock because I was everybody's world. <laughs> and the next moment I have to discover a word called share. First thing I had to do is share my mother. That was a shock because I had had her all to myself. And now I found that other people, other smaller than I was, not as strong as I was, had, had, had the, the right to demand some of her attention that I had the exclusive claim on the day before. That required some adjustment. So we had to learn to bear with one another. And you know, having to bear with one another is part of the process of growing up. Because when you have to bear with one another, it exposes things in us. I've discovered that God puts people in my life, I call them sandpaper. I'm not thinking of anybody, so don't worry about it right now. But he puts people in your life that are there to design to irritate you. That's their calling. And there's some people very good at it. Don't look to your left or right right now. And for years, I'd fight it because I'm trying to get away from them. Until it dawned on me, God put them there so that I would have to learn to walk in love. Because what exposed in me is how much I was walking by my flesh and not by love. So bearing with one another is part of the process of growing up. And that's our calling, is to grow up. In verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there's one body, one Spirit, just as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given. We're going to talk about that today. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now drop down to verse 11. And he gave some of these gifts as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And verse 12 is where we've been dwelling. For the equipping of the saints 
for the work of the ministry, some translations say service, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, thereby causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What we've talked about so far is we've talked about the fact that we're one body. We've talked about the fact that God has given to us gifts. And that's what that verse 9 says about the gifts that we're given. And it's a grace, verse 8. And then he says in verse 11, he lists some of these gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And they're not special people. That's a job description, a function in the body. And we see that in verse 12, those gifts are given to the body for a purpose, which is to equip the saints. And we've looked at the fact of what that word, first of all, what the saints are, and we've established it's all of us. The word saint is the Greek word that just means set apart. If you're in Christ, you've been set apart from the world. It doesn't mean you're acting like it, but that's who you are. That's how God sees you. So the word saint, in almost all cases in the New Testament, refers to a believer in Christ. So this is talking about all of us. So these gifts have been given to equip us. And we spent a Sunday and looked at the word equipping. And we see that that word means, has two aspects to it. First of all, it means to mend or make whole. So the first thing that God wants to do in your life and will use these gifts to do is to make you whole. Because many of us, most of us, almost all of us come into the body of Christ broken in some way. In many ways, this church is a hospital. You'd be amazed at some of the people that God has sent here. People into ministry. I came in here having been a lawyer for 10 years, having been a pastor for 6 years, and I came in and just sat for 6 years. For the first 4 years, I did nothing. I just sat. It just needed to be strengthened. Because I'd been burned, I burned out. And I needed to be strengthened. I needed to be made whole. There were areas of my life that I had to mature in. And I just sat here and received the Word of God and allowed the Word of God to mature me and to work in me. Now, I had to humble myself because I'd often sit here thinking when they bring on some of the outside ministers, I've taught that before. I can teach that. I can teach that. But I had to sit because God's assignment for me for that period of my life was to sit and allow him to make me whole inside and to strengthen me and to reveal areas where I needed to, ooh, grow up in. (laughs) But I had a choice to make. I could say, no, I'm in such and such an age. I don't need to do that. I've been trained. I've been a pastor. I don't need to do that. But God had put me here because I needed to grow up in some areas. I needed to mature in some areas. And so I was willing to submit to that and go through the process that God took me through. And I'm convinced today that if I had not been patient and allowed him to do that in me, I would not be standing here today. See, we have choices to make. God will work with you 
but you have to decide to cooperate with his process. You can fight it and argue with it, and you can say, no, I don't need to do that. I know better, but realize you're saying, I know better than God. And so you've got to learn to cooperate with that process. And so part of this equipping is to mend. But the other aspect of this word equipping means to give you what you need to accomplish what you're called to do. And then we went on last time we talked, and it was the equipping of the saints and so that we can do the work of the ministry. We talked about that word work and what it means. It means work. It means doing things. And today what we're going to do is we're going to now talk about the work of the ministry. So we're going through this verse, chapter, verse 12, one word at a time so that we can take these words apart because they're talking about us. We're not today reading about Daniel or King David and we can learn wonderful things about us. But this letter and this part of this letter was written to you and me personally. You and I are saints. And God here in this section of passage is talking about you and me. And this is God on high speaking to you this morning, telling you something and telling me something. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the work of the ministry, what the ministry is and what your calling is in the ministry and how to find out what your part is in the ministry. Because verse 16, which is where we're going to end up, talks about every part taking its place in the body and performing its function. And this morning, sitting where you are or watching where you're watching, if you're in Christ, you are a part of the body and you have been assigned by the head a function. And you are, your calling in life is to fulfill that function. Function is that part. And when you do that, you will find that you are satisfied, that you are, that you are fulfilled. Because what, the reason most people are taking pills and seeing doctors for their head, in all, not all cases, but in many cases, is because somehow inside they're frustrated, they're not fulfilled. And the reason they're not frustrated is because they're not doing what God has ordained for them to do. I have been in the middle of all kinds of crises. But when I know I'm doing what God made me to do, there's peace in here. And I've been out there trying to do what I wanted to do and accomplishing great things and, and making money and achieving great things in the world's eyes. But there wasn't peace in here. Because I wasn't doing what God made me to do. Understand, you don't get to choose your calling. That's why it's a calling. Calling means somebody else has decided what they want you to do, and they've called you. Now, when somebody calls you on the phone, we now have this wonderful call waiting. We can see who it is that's called us. So we can decide whether we want to answer it. Because you have a choice to make when your phone rings, whether you're going to answer the call or not answer the call. And what's true with your cell phone and your home phone is true with your calling from God. That part's your choice. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the work of the ministry.
this word, this word ministry is an interesting word. Because in our society, we have built up the ministry in our minds to be a profession. For 10 years, I was a lawyer. Then I went studied for ministry, pastored for a while. Then I went back for nine years into the law. I chose to be a lawyer. I chose it for a number of different reasons. And I enjoyed the profession, and I was successful at it. But somewhere along the line after I got saved, something began to gnaw in me. And I remember one night in prayer, God began to deal with me that this was not the purpose for my life. And I began to realize that, that what I was doing as a lawyer was something that I was, had learned how to do, but there was this awareness in me, it's not what I was made to do. The first time I stepped into a pulpit, and it was just to speak for somebody else, something went off in me, and I knew the difference. I knew that I was doing what I was made to do. And there's a difference. And if you don't know the difference yet, you haven't yet found what you were made to do. You may be close to it, but you haven't found what you were made to do. It's like a coin going into a slot. When you put it in one of these vending machines, you just hope it gets to where it's supposed to get to because you don't have any more quarters left. And it, you know, there's this horrible sense that it didn't hit the last... <laughs> it's waiting to... But when it hits that thing, you can tell it's hit the place it's supposed to hit. It's fallen into that place. And that's what it's like, and God has that for you. And we're going to look a little bit at that this morning. So the world's idea of ministry is that it's a profession. And some people signify that by wearing a special collar, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, by wearing special robes and things like that to signify that they are members of, of a profession. And that's nice, it sounds wonderful, but here's the problem with that. Two problems. First of all, it's not what the Bible teaches. That's the basic problem. But here's the functional problem. Because if you go to a, a, a professional person, you're going to pay them to perform a service for you. So while I was a lawyer, if you came to me as a client, you paid the firm for which I was working for my expertise, and you came to submit to what I would do for you and paid for that service. So the idea basically was you were passive in the process, and I was active. You told me the problem, and I said, okay, we'll take care of it. Come back a week. We'll have the papers drawn up. We'll have your will drawn or whatever. It was. We'll now take care of this for you. That's what you're paying us to do. And so that's fine when you're going to see a doctor because they've been trained and because of that training they're entitled to be compensated for that and they're compensated for that and you expect them, tell me what's wrong and fix it. That's really all I care about. Go to the lawyer. This is what my problem is. Tell me what I got to do or you do it. Fix it for me. And that's the idea of a profession. So when we move that over into the ministry, we bring that same vision in. The vision is I come to church and I put my offerings in to pay the professional to fix me and to fix things and to do what needs to be done. So I come in here expecting the minister to do the work and I just come and receive the benefit of the work. But that's not what that word ministry means. Some of you have translations that are a little more accurate that say service. 
The Greek word is the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. Diakonos, there are a number of Greek words that are used for ministry. There's a word, liaturgio, which means a kind of worshiping. It's, it's, it's the performance of what the, the, the priest did in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a spiritual type of thing. This word, literally at its roots, means a table waiter. So remember the last time you went to a restaurant. What happened? Hopefully. Unless it was a fast food place. Where they actually, you sat down at a table and they had waiters. And what is the waiter's role? The waiter comes over and asks you what you want. Give you the menu. Ask you what you want. Then their job is to take your order and go into the kitchen and tell the chef to prepare what you asked for. The chef prepares it, and now your job switches. Your job now is to take what the chef prepared and bring it out and place it in front of the customer. You don't prepare anything. All you do is receive instructions from one side, go and take them to someone else, take what they prepared, and go and bring back. It's a very menial job. And some of you have been waiters, some of you are waiters now, waitresses. And there's nothing wrong with it. But you wouldn't, you, you, it's, it's a service that's being performed. In fact, some of you may have had the experience of going into a wonderful restaurant. The food is great, but the service was lousy. You had to sit there. And you know people have told you this is a great restaurant, and you sit there. And... That happened to us on vacation. We went to a place we'd been to before. And we only had like two hours in this, in this place. So we only had a limited amount of time. We wanted to see some things. We went to it was sitting by the water. It was a place that Anita wanted to go there, go back there. So we were sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. And finally, I went and got a hold of a waiter who wasn't our waiter because we'd place a drink order right away. And 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, we haven't even seen him. So finally, I got someone else. They came over. They got our drink order. And now I said, don't move. We'll give you our order. We got you here. We gave them our order. They went back and disappeared. An hour and a half. The food was wonderful. But the experience was terrible. Since we had two hours there, it was wasted time. Now, we had a great time together, a great view. But I couldn't even enjoy the view. And I didn't get upset but I couldn't enjoy the view because my whole mind was on, we have a limited time. It ruined the experience. A menial task. Now, I understood that they were swamped. They weren't prepared for what the people that had come. But it still ruined the experience. So although the, 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 the waiter doesn't prepare the food, they have a major impact on the experience that the customer has. In fact, they're the interface They're the one that, you don't see the chef usually. So the word ministry literally means a menial job, a table waiter. Now, I'm not demeaning the job, but it's not a high profession in that sense. It's a service. And that's what we're all called to. The work of the ministry is the work of serving. 
And it's a word that does not imply some high, lofty position. It implies providing the basic needs. So we're going to look at some of these from the scriptures and see where some of them, there are are a number of places where some of them are listed. Then I want to talk to you about how to identify yours. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. Now, in verses 1 and 2, Paul has referred back to what he's been talking about and saying, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let's read it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Chapter 12, verse 1 is one of those pivot places I've talked to you about where Paul, when he writes his letters, will usually spend the first part of of a letter telling them what God's done for them and who they are. And in this, and in this letter, which is 16 chapters long, he goes 11 chapters. And he's talking, of course, he didn't write it in chapters and verses. But what he wrote, we've divided up into chapters and verses. And it, it, by, at the end of chapter 11, he's so overwhelmed because he's talking about the mercy of God that God has extended to us. He almost goes into this, this tripping out saying, Oh, the wonderful mercies of God. Who can understand the greatness of the mercies of God? And now chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by these mercies. In other words, because of what God has done for us, how merciful he's been to us, this is what our response ought to be. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, what? Is your reasonable, what? Service. Service. Now, Paul, in his letter to the, his first letter, his first letter to the Corinthian church, makes this real clear. He says, when you've come to Christ, you're no longer your own. He says in chapter 6, you were bought with a price. So understand that when you came to Christ, It was free, but it cost you everything because you gave your life to him. That means you don't belong to yourself anymore. If you're in Christ, you belong to him. So Paul could have said, you already belong to him. But what he's encouraging us to do is to give ourselves freely as an act of worship to him because of how merciful he's been to us. And how are we to give ourselves to him? By presenting ourselves, our body, available to serve him. And he says that's only reasonable in light of what God's done for us. Because he served us. To serve somebody means to meet their needs. What was your need? What was my need? I needed someone to die for me. I needed someone to bear the penalty that I had earned by my sin and rebellion. I needed somebody to do that for me. So Christ came and served me by taking my sin upon him and bearing the penalty for it. That was the ultimate act of service. Now Paul is saying is, I beseech you because of that mercy that was given to you that you respond by giving yourself to him in service, which is only reasonable. 
And then he goes on in verse 2 and says, and that you be transformed, that you be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, verse 3 is what I want to get to you. Get to. For I say through the grace of God given to me. Now, remember back in Ephesians 4, he says, and, but to each one of us, grace was given. I think it's verse 8. To each one of us, grace was given. Now, this word grace is the same word that refers to the grace that we've all been given. It refers, the, the simplest definition of this word grace is God's unmerited favor. Basically, it means you got something you didn't deserve. And you didn't get something you did deserve. And so that grace, we're saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. We're saved by grace through faith, and that's not of ourselves. So we're saved by grace. It's a gift from God. But God has put things in you that you didn't earn and you didn't deserve. And that's also what Paul calls grace. So here Paul says, by the grace that was given to me, So grace, the word grace is the word charisma, which literally means a gift freely bestowed. So not only is your salvation a gift, but God has freely given to you gifts, talents, abilities, sensitivities, understandings that God has put in you as an act of his sovereign will. And Paul, in this case, is referring to grace in that context. So back in Ephesians that we read before in chapter 4, what he said in verse 8, but to each one of us grace was given. That's what he's saying. To each one, to each one of us. To each one of us. To each one of us. That means to everyone here this morning or in the sound of my voice who's come to Christ, he's talking to you. To each one of you, God has given a particular grace, a gift, an ability. See, we have trouble recognizing them because we're looking for big abilities, the obvious, splashy things. But what we're going to see in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God talks about some of the parts of the body which are the unseemly parts, which are the parts that don't get a lot of recognition, like your spleen until it doesn't work right. And now you've got to take your blood sugar checked, you've got to take insulin, it affects everything else in your body because that one organ isn't working right. Each one of us, a grace was given. Some of them are obvious, some of them are not so obvious and that's what we're going to talk, begin to talk about this morning because this may go into next week because I want to take time because I want to help you identify what grace has been given to you. Because every one of you, every one of you has had something given to you that God is asking for you to contribute to the wholeness and the wellness of his body. I say, therefore, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What's he talking about there? 
He's saying to get the right estimation of yourself. Not to think more highly of yourself than you should, but not to think more lowly of yourself self in your third. Understand this, that whatever God's given you, He gave it to you. I had to recognize early on that God had given me a gift to teach. I can take no credit for it because it's not the result of some, something I developed in myself. Even back when I was a lawyer, I would the clients say to me, were you a teacher before you were a lawyer? I say, why? They say, because you explain things very clearly to us. And I didn't realize that. I just was me. That was my instinct. But one of the things we're going to real, discover is that when God has given you a gift, you will tend to operate in that gift whether you realize it or not. And people will draw on that gift whether they realize you have it or not. It draws like a magnet people who have needs in that area. So I wasn't aware that I was a teacher. I was just explaining to my clients what the law said. But that gift was in me because God put it in me. Therefore, I can take no credit for it. I didn't earn it. I can take no credit for it. And then I had to realize it's been given to me for a purpose, to be used. And part of its purpose is what we talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, for the equipping of the saints, because one of those gifts is a pastor and a teacher. I didn't realize for quite a while that God had put in me the gift of a pastor, but the teacher I realized early on because I could see it coming, operating in me. I could begin to notice it operating in me, but I can't think more highly of myself than that because I didn't create it. I can take no credit for it. In fact, when I'm thinking about it, then I'm looking in the wrong way. I'm looking at myself instead of the purpose for which it was given. Not to think more highly of yourself than you ought, but how are we to think? Soberly. The word soberly is a word that means to have a sound mind about something, to be disciplined in your thinking. When Paul wrote to Timothy and said, "Your uh, 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 God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind, it's the same word. It means to think clearly. It means to think, to be disciplined in your thinking, but it means to be alert and awake and realize what's really going on around you. We're to think soberly, and that's what I'm talking about. I had to learn to think soberly about the gift that God had given to me, to recognize the responsibility that goes with the gift. God doesn't just give you gifts to to give you something. He gives you gifts because there's a responsibility that goes with that gift. And when Paul says not to think more highly of yourself... See, the battle of human nature is we're trying to find meaning and significance. We're trying to be important. We need a sense of, of meaning and of, of, of being fulfilled and of being important. And, and so many people are, 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 are weak in those areas. So many people have, 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 don't think very much of themselves. They, for whatever reason, when they were growing up, uh, they did not get a healthy image of themselves. And the result is they're struggling. And so much of the struggle that people have, in fact, a lot of the, what's behind a lot of the behavior that's not good behavior of people is they're trying to fill a need inside of them, but they're trying to fill it the wrong way. Only God can fill that need. Only God can... Alcohol can't fill it. Drugs can't fill it. Being nasty with people can't fill it. 
It may make you feel good about yourself because you can boss people around, but that's just showing how insecure you are. When you try to control other people's lives, it's showing how insecure you are. There's an old expression, hurting people hurt people. So if there are people in your life hurting people, it's in all likelihood because they're hurting. And so Paul had to write one whole letter Actually, one whole letter to the church at Corinth addressing the fact that we've talked about this before, that God had given them spiritual gifts, but they were assuming because God had given them those gifts that that meant God was saying that they were spiritually mature. And in reality, Paul was telling them how carnal they were. So the gift that God gives you is not a measure of anything about you. And so when Paul says to think not more highly of ourselves, is don't think because God's given you a gift that makes you a special person. There's a responsibility that goes with that gift. Therefore, think soberly about what God's done in you. And then he goes on and says something else that's very important because we're going to talk about how to apply these. But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one of you a measure of faith. Now, that's not the faith that gets saved. Hebrew, Romans, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, says that the faith that it took you to get saved was a gift, for, even that was a gift from God. We didn't even have the faith to get saved. God had to give that to you. But this is the faith to operate the gift. Because a lot of times, the reason people hold back, they well, who am I that God would use me? But if God has given you a, gr- a gift then he's given you the faith to operate that gift. And it takes faith to walk in these gifts. Faith in what? Faith in the gift. This is going to be hard for some of you to accept. (laughs) But I am really a very shy person. I am. I sometimes... Standing over there before I come up there, I feel like I'm going to go from Clark Kent to Superman. <laughs> There's going to be a change somewhere between in there. And I, every time I come up here, I say, Holy Spirit, I put myself into your hands. I, I can't, if you don't operate this gift, I can't do anything. And God, one time, when I first started out, gave me a taste of what that was like to stand up and try to teach for an hour without the anointing. It was painful. I'm talking about what I experienced. Forget the people. I don't know what agony they went through. It was agony. Same person. And God was teaching me that without him using that gift, I can't do anything. So I've developed over the years faith that he will operate that gift through me. Faith in that gift. Faith that God will use that gift. And that, that develops over time as all faith develops. But God's given, if he's given you a grace, then he's given you the faith that is measured according to the grace that he's given you. So he's given you the, this is not, again, faith to be healed. It's not, it's faith to operate in the, to exercise the gift that God has given you. Because in many of your cases, you look at yourself, well, how could God use me? You don't understand, Pastor, what I've been like. You don't know what I'm like. You have no idea the times I've spent in here saying, God, you put me in this position. You know who you got. I've had that. Do you understand me? And then I realize how foolish a thing to say to God, who knows everything. 
And then I had to repent for questioning his judgment. Forgive me, God, for questioning you. Now I need to to see what I need to change. What do you want me to do? I accept the responsibility that you've given to me. Now, what do I need to change? Where do I need to grow? What do you want to show me so that I can operate in in what you've called me to do? And so God has given to you the faith. So you need that faith because if you look at yourself, you'll say, who, me? How could God use me? One of the reasons God does use people like you and like me is because it's proof to who he's ministering to of what he's like. See, if you have everything together and you never make a mistake and you just, you know, you just, just... Beautiful, loving words just always flow off of your tongue. And no matter what anybody does to you, just look at them and say, oh, bless you. God loves you. I mean, it's just, you just so, nothing ever ruffles you. you People have trouble relating to that. That doesn't mean we go out and take everybody's head off and do it. But I mean, just in the process of growing up, your, your weaknesses will show up. And then it's how you handle those. I remember one time when I was, we were in Oklahoma in Bible school, and I, I, uh, they knew I was a Christian. I was working in a law firm there. And I, they knew I was a Christian. It was a small office. And, um, and I, I was under a lot of pressure. And I'm basically a patient person, but I got pushed. And, and I, I snapped at one of the secretaries. And... Um, and I did it in front of the senior partner. And I go back in my office and my conscience begins to bother me. You know, my mind's saying, what's no big deal? They all snap at each other all the time. But I'm a Christian. I represent Christ in this office. So I had to go to her and apologize. And she was fine. Now I had to go to the senior partner and sit out with him. I said, I need to talk to you. I said, I just, I just lost my temper in front of you and in front of her. He said, ah, oh, that's no big deal. You know, we do this all the time. I said, I can't do that. I, don't, I can't live by the same standards everybody else lives by because I represent Christ. So I'm asking you to forgive me. So I made a mistake, but it was how you handle that mistake. That's the same office where his daughter came to me and asked me, what do you have that I don't have? See, it's not that we have it all together. It's how we handle things when we don't have it all together that shows his mercy and his working in my life that makes him real. So not only have you been given a gift, but you've been given the faith that's needed to operate in that gift and not by your own strength. It's a grace to do that. See, when God moves you into a new position or whatever it is, there's a grace to do that that comes along with it. So other people looking at that say, I don't know how you can do that. The reason you can do it is because God's given you a grace to do it. Well, let's look a little bit further on. Verse 4. But as we have many members in one body, we've talked a lot about that, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, talking about us in the body of Christ, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Verse 6. Having then gifts 
That's that same word. Differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And then he's going to talk about some of them. This is not an exhaustive list. We're going to go through a list here, and we're going to go through a list in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at some in 1 Peter. We may not get to them all today. And these are not all the gifts that are given, but it's enough of a sampling where you may begin to begin to identify the gift that's in you. And so what he says here, first of all, notice the context here. Therefore, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, that word again means serving people, helping people. I asked the Lord one time, because I was teaching on the ministry of helps, which is really what this is about. And I said, Lord, what, do you, what does it mean by help? <laughs> God is sometimes just so simple and straightforward. He said, it's whatever helps. <laughs> Wasn't that simple? But that means I've got to find out what's needed so I can help. A lot of times... What, what I would do, even, even as a pastor sometimes, when you sit down, it's easy when someone sits down to talk to you and share with you what their situation is, is your mind's already working on the answer. I learned this years ago. I learned about this. I'm still learning how to apply it. I learned this years ago that when I'm thinking of the answer, that means I'm not listening to what's being said. I, I had to learn that in the context of my marriage. So that when she's sharing with me and i am already got the answer figured out or I'm working on the answer while she's sharing with me, that means I'm not listening because I think I already know the, what she's going to tell me and I've already coming up with my answer. And that's not listening. And aren't you glad God doesn't do that with us? And he does know the answer. So in order to help, I've got to find out what's needed. But help just means practical things that are needed to be done. Again, we spiritualize this, that ministry is, you know, is all these spiritual exercises, and there's part of it that is, but some of it's just physical stuff. Let me just think for a moment of what had to go on in order for us to be able to come in here this morning and be comfortable. Someone had to come here early, and it was Alan, the head usher, one of the elders, one of our staff members, came here early to open the doors, at least I assume it was today, he usually does, to make sure that the, the heater, the air conditioning is where it's supposed to be. Someone had to clean it. There are people that had to do just everyday normal stuff we do at home, but they had to do here so that you and I could come in and not even think about those things. The only time we think about them is if somebody doesn't do them or they don't do them correctly. Somebody has to be already back there operating the lighting system and the sound system. Just think of what, just, I'm not talking about me preaching under the anointing or somebody ministering in children's church. I'm talking about natural, physical things that have to take place in order for just a regular, ordinary service to go on. Just to hear the music. Unless you've been part of that, you, have no, you probably have no idea of the time and hours that are put in to their preparing and rehearsing. The time that goes in just to putting the... See, they don't just get up there and pick a song and sing it. There are arrangements that are put together. And the arrangements that we have in this choir and this band are very sophisticated arrangements because we have some very gifted, talented people, some very gifted, 
talented people that God has put here. And in operating their gift, they, we, because of that gift, we're able to operate at a level, a sound, which is beyond the number of people that we have. But that takes work. It takes time. It takes effort that they put in as an act of service to him so that they can lead us into an experience of worship with God on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights and whatever other time we come together. And there are other things that go on, just people that pay the bills and manage the administration of it. All these things, this service that goes on that helps so that the church can function and you and I can come in and not think about these things. I mean, I can come back from the vacation and walk in here with a confidence that all those things are taken care of because we have people here that are serving faithfully to do what using the gifts that God has given to them. The work of the ministry, the work of service, the work of helping. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, it takes faith to prophesy. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Because understand when you prophesy, what you're saying is, God is speaking through me. There was a book written by a man named John Bevere a number of years ago called Thus Saith the Lord. I would suggest reading it if you have any sense you have a gift of prophecy. In the Old Testament, they dealt with prophets very simply. If you said the Lord said this is going to happen, they waited to see if it happened. If it happened, they called you a prophet. If it didn't, they took you outside the city. They all picked up rocks and stoned you to death. You never did it again. What that instilled in them was a sense of awe. I better know I heard from God. Now, we don't do that here. But what we must have is a sense of awe and respect that if I'm going to stand up and say, God said so-and-so, that's why we have a system hereby. If, if somebody's going to prophesy, they come and speak to me or whoever's in charge and tell me what they sense it is because they're not in charge of the service. In this case, I am of the flow. And if I say, no, I don't think it's right, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means I don't think it belongs here right now because sometimes God gives you things that are for you. And we don't know what to do with them when we get a sense of something, so we think, I must do something with it. You need to ask God, what do you want me to do with it? Amen. Maybe it's just for you. Maybe you're picking up something. I don't was planning on getting into this this morning at all. Maybe you're just picking up something that's in the Spirit. And that doesn't mean you're the one that's supposed to bring it. So what he's saying is do it in a proportion with the faith that God gives you to operate in it. And you can do it in your flesh. That's what the church at Corinth was doing. They were prophesying all over the place. And Paul had to write one whole chapter saying how to deal with prophecy in the church. So one of these, and again, I'm not going to focus on prophecy. I want to show you this principle that a gift has been given to you and the faith to operate it at the level God wants you to operate it. See, what's important here at the end is this. When we all stand before the Lord, all He's going to ask you is, did you, what did you do with what I gave you to do? That was what the whole parable of the talents is about. Yes, he didn't give them the same amount of talents. In one case, there's two different parables. In one case, He gave ten, five, and I think two or one. And He, and he asked him, what did you do with them? What did you do with what I gave you? 
So we're going to stand before him and he's going to ask you, what did you do with the gift I gave you? I didn't even know I had a gift. I still have to answer for what I did with it. So it behooves me to find out what it is and then to do it. But to do what I'm called to do with my... See, every part of your body has a role to play. And if every part of your body is performing its function or its role, we call your body healthy. But if one of your parts of your body starts acting up, suppose your heart, and there's some of you that have had this experience here, your heart is responsible for pumping blood, correct? But what if it decides, and it happens in some cases, of course your heart doesn't make this decision, but what if your heart decides to pump it harder and faster because it's competing with your lungs? Now your heart's pumping faster and faster and harder and harder, faster and faster and harder. That will affect your health. In fact, you'll eventually pass out or have other symptoms that have take place. And they have to treat that because your heart's performing its function beyond the level that it was called to function in. So it has to stay within the boundaries of what it was ordained to do because it's not just there for its own sake. It's not just there to show how strong it is. It's not just there to show how fast it is. It's there to support the rest of the body by taking that life-giving oxygen that's embedded in your blood and move it around so it's available to all the different cells. So your heart is serving the rest of your body, even though it's a major organ. So it has to stay within the bounds of what it was designed to do. And so you and I are all going to stand before the Lord one day and he's going to say, what did you do with your gift? And the standard is this. Were you faithful to use it to the purpose for which I gave it to you? I personally believe there are people out there doing wonderful things for God, but they're not what he called them to do. And we've talked about that before in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, I never knew you. He said, but we did wonderful things in your name. He said, yeah, but you practiced lawlessness. You did what you wanted to do. You didn't call me Lord. I wasn't your Lord. You didn't do what I assigned you to do. You did what you wanted to do. And even though it was wonderful and performed great things in my name, I didn't know you. You didn't do it out of me. You did it in your own strength. Sobering words. But didn't we just read he said to be sober-minded. This is serious stuff not only because we're going to stand before him, but because he didn't just give you that gift so that we'd all be blessed because there's something God wants to do through his body to reach people he cannot reach unless you and I do what we're called to do. That's what moves his heart. That's what drives him. Just as it drove him and moved his heart to reach you, it drives him and moves his heart to reach others that he hasn't been able to reach yet. And that's why he's given you and equipped you and given me and equipped me with the gifts with which he's given us. We're going to have to pick up here next, next week.